Hello, I'm Robin Pomeroy, the host of Radio Davos. The episode you're about to hear was recorded and edited before the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, an event that has shocked the world and changed priorities and news agendas everywhere. In future episodes of Radio Davos, we will be looking in depth at issues around the Ukraine crisis, as well as continuing to look at other major global issues. Thanks for subscribing. Here's this week's Radio Davos. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at Autobahn speeds, you get to the top of the sky in five minutes or so, and below you will then be all of the global warming pollution. And we're using that as an open sewer. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, Al Gore, the former US vice president turned climate change campaigner and entrepreneur. Our current policies around the world still subsidize the burning of fossil fuels more than 30 times greater than the meager amounts that are being used to accelerate the transition to renewable energy. The challenge is clear. So what about the solutions? have the solutions. We need the policies and the political decisions and business decisions to implement them. Al Gore's been banging on about climate change for decades. Does he feel he's making progress? We are right now beginning to cross the fabled political tipping point, beyond which uh, there will be sufficient political support to overcome the rearguard lobbying actions and political actions by the polluters. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and with this interview with Al Gore on climate change, We don't have time for despair. We don't have time to get depressed. It's an all hands on deck time. We can't pretend it's not getting worse faster than we've yet begun to solve it. This is Radio Davos. Radio Davos has a sister podcast called Meet the Leader, where my colleague Linda Lacina sits down with leaders, usually chief executives of big companies, but also other types of leaders. And a couple of weeks ago, she interviewed Al Gore, a leading figure in raising public awareness of climate change. The interview was so interesting, we thought we'd give Radio Davos listeners a chance to hear it. It's slightly shorter here than the one on Meet the Leader, so please subscribe to that podcast for the full version and loads of great interviews about leadership. Linda began by asking Al Gore about the fact that this decade is often called the Decade for Action because of the massive amount of action needed by 2030 to avert climate disaster. She asked him how he thought that was going. That's a loaded question. Uh, Let me take a step back and start by explaining why so many people are saying this decade is so crucial for climate action. Uh, Over the last couple of years, We've heard many leaders from all around the world make pledges to achieve net zero global warming pollution emissions by 2050. And that 2050 timeline is aligned with the latest science and the goal of the historic Paris Agreement uh, in 2015. And if we reach net zero by 2050, we will be able to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and the Earth's temperatures will stop going up once we reach net zero with a lag time of as little as three to five years. But here's the the catch. The science is very clear that we will only be able to achieve that goal if we cut our current emissions in half by 2030 over the next eight years. So 
what that means is that the actions that our leaders take right now, this year and over the next eight years, will determine whether we're able to keep that 2050 goal within reach. If we fail to do that, then of course the world, uh, according to the scientific community, virtually unanimous, saying that we will face increasingly disastrous impacts from the climate crisis. Uh, and it's becoming abundantly clear as we face these uh, climate-induced uh, catastrophic weather disasters all around the globe. Obviously, they're getting more frequent. They're getting worse, more extreme. The impacts of the climate crisis are still increasing much faster than we have yet been able to deploy the solutions. We have the solutions. We need the policies and the, the political decisions and business decisions to, to implement them. And now we know the last eight years were the warmest eight years ever measured with instruments in all of history. 25 countries had their hottest years ever recorded last year. Just yesterday, the all-time heat record was broken in Argentina the day before in Australia. And you saw the flooding in Germany and Belgium and so many places. I'm not going to go through the list of horribles, but they're getting worse uh, faster than predicted. Now, at the same time, the so-called direction of travel in global markets is now clear. We are moving away from fossil fuels toward clean, renewable energy. Uh, the astonishing cost reduction curves for clean electricity from solar and wind, for batteries, for electric vehicles, for hundreds of less well-known but dramatic efficiency improvements, they're, they're all profoundly reshaping the economics of sustainability. So in that respect, we're beginning to make some progress. And in roughly the past dozen years here in my country, in the U.S., the cost of solar electricity has dropped 90%. Uh, for wind, 72% down. EV battery costs have dropped 89%. LED uh, lighting costs have dropped 94%. Uh, that means these resources are being deployed more broadly around the globe. And if you look at newly installed electricity generation capacity last year worldwide, 90% of it was renewables. But the turnover is slow, and so we're still using a lot of fossil fuels, 80% of our energy is still coming from it. But in the next five years, the International Energy Agency projects that percentage is going to uh, increase to 95% of all new electricity generation is going to be renewable. And a lot of local and regional jurisdictions are mandating that renewables provide 100% of their power. And the market has been transformed with dizzying speed, but it's still not enough. Uh, here's a quick example, Linda. Just one year before the Paris Agreement was reached in 2015, solar and wind were cheaper than new coal and gas uh, plants for electricity in only 1% of the world. But five years later, solar and wind were the cheapest sources of new electricity in more than two-thirds of the world. And in the next three years, they're going to be cheaper in 100% uh, of the world. Now, on the flip side of that, the market for fossil fuels is beginning to shrink. Many oil, gas, and coal resources are uh, at high risk of becoming stranded assets. We have a, a subprime carbon bubble creating uh, the foundation of a, of a bubble many times larger than the subprime mortgage bubble that triggered the global financial crisis 15 
years ago. Uh, but big changes aren't limited only to the energy sector. Companies and innovators are rethinking mobility, our food systems, agriculture, building materials, and so much more. So we're, we're going to see even bigger shifts and even more exciting opportunities for this investment as this sustainability revolution continues to take hold. So to summarize, while we haven't moved nearly fast enough to deploy the solutions yet, we have developed some significant momentum over the past two years. And I choose to be optimistic that this momentum in the marketplace paired with a renewed sense of political leadership on this issue is gonna drive significant progress. But we have to hold leaders' feet to the fire. We have to ensure that the pledges that have recently been made are followed through and are paired with substantive action. And if uh, leaders, if they lose the momentum that has been building a little bit, what happens uh, if, if they don't sort of uh, keep that going this year in particular? Well, you, you know, job number one for all leaders is to stop using the sky as an open sewer. Uh, the, the sky is not a vast and limitless expanse. The, the troposphere, the atmosphere within which we all live, is only five to seven kilometers uh, high. You, if you could drive a car straight up in the air at Autobahn speeds, you'd get to the top of the sky in five minutes or so. Uh, where you can't breathe unassisted anymore, and below you will then be all of the global warming pollution. And we're using that as an open sewer. We're putting 162 million tons of man-made global warming pollution into it every day. So obviously, we have to rapidly decarbonize all aspects of our lives uh, and of our work. And uh, too often, we're seeing businesses make these ambiguous long-term net zero goals of better than not making them at all, uh, but it's just far short of what we need. We see a lot of leaders putting forward plans that rely predominantly on sketchy offsets to reach net zero, and offsets have a role to play, but they can't be a get-out-of-jail-free card that continues uh, the pollution unabated. We, not, we have the solutions. <laughs> That's what's so frustrating. And they're better, they're cheaper, uh, they say they can save the lives of 9 million people every single year that, that die because of the co-pollution from burning fossil fuels. So our current course of action is quite literally insane and suicidal. So it's not only the right thing to do for business leaders, it also has the potential to help your bottom line. And for those who don't do it, uh, we're entering a period of radical transparency. Your emissions are being measured. Uh, by the end of this year, we will have an asset level inventory of every single significant emission source on the planet uh, in near real time. And uh, now we see all these uh, companies wanting their supply chains to be net zero. We're seeing investors demanding net zero portfolios. Uh, we're seeing executive teams uh, um, moving in that direction, and we have to hold them accountable. And those who don't follow through will be held accountable in the court of public opinion, which translates directly into lost business opportunities and the destruction of their own future.
You were talking a little bit about entrepreneurship and, and the innovations that are emerging. Where do you think that entrepreneurship and innovation can make the biggest impact right now? You know, where should people be investing? What, 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 what do you sort of see as where we can really, really prioritize this sort of thinking? Well, I, I am a chairman and co-founder of an investment firm. So your question ha- has a pointed meaning for me, but I always avoid singling out a, you know, a handful of great investing opportunities. Uh, I'd rather talk about the themes that I think all investors should take into account. And here's the main one. We are now in the early stages of a global sustainability revolution that is empowered by new digital technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence and distributed ledgers and the internet of things. Uh, Also in the biotechnology uh, area, uh, stunning advances. And all of these changes uh, taken together are giving executive teams and businesses in every sector of the economy the new ability to, to deal with electrons and protons and atoms and molecules uh, and, and proteins uh, and, and genes with the same proficiency that the IT companies have demonstrated in their handling of uh, bits of information. This sustainability revolution has the scale of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution. It is already beginning to disrupt sector after sector. I talked about electricity generation. Look at EVs. Within one year, some of the most important model categories are going to be cheaper in the EV version than in the combustion version. And within three years, that will be true of all model categories. Look at lighting. The LEDs are already uh, taking over almost uh, 99% of that market, but they're less well-known changes, like to take a mundane one, variable speed pumps and motors and their analogs throughout uh, industry. Why keep things running at a maximum RPM rate when the workflow changes and and varies? New material sciences are uh, allowing the demassification uh, of construction and, and building in every sector of the economy. In agriculture, the regenerative agriculture movement is helping farmers cut down the absurd cost uh, of surplus nitrogen fertilizing, most of which is wasted and causes these dead zones. Sustainable forestry is another example and the so-called circular economy. These are all themes that are connected to this fast moving sustainability revolution. And I believe that investing in that clean, prosperous, and more equitable future is not only morally right, it is the smartest bet for maximizing returns on investing. You have been an advocate for the climate for for decades. How have you evolved uh, over that time as a leader? Have there been sort of maybe tactics that you've changed or ways that you've decided, you know, hey, I can be more effective uh, using this trait or um, developing uh, this habit in a new way? How have you changed uh, as a leader? Well, thank you for asking that question. Uh, It underscores the fact that it's really essential for anybody who aspires to be a leader in whatever sector of our economy or or our society to evolve. And of course, we all grow and and change. But if you are evolving, 
in a positive way. It means you're growing and learning. And uh, in my case, I've found that one of the main drivers uh, of positive change and evolution as a leader is opening up to a diversity of perspectives and experiences. Uh, it, it's crucial as a leader to encourage diversity uh, across all uh, of the, the lines of uh, gender, uh, age, race, ethnicity, religion, orientation, uh, abilities, etc. Et you want maximum diversity in the, the people you rely on uh, for information and advice and, and teamwork in every single area, except for one. You have to ensure that your team is aligned uh, in their values. And I think the role of a leader is to constantly elevate the importance of the values in the organization, to constantly reiterate uh, an inspiring vision, uh, and of course, to set uh, time-relevant priorities uh, in how to achieve that mission in a sensible way with all decisions being based on the values uh, that you have come to share with those in your organization across all roles in government, the private sector, and civil society, encouraging open and candid debate and seeking out a, a maximum variety of perspectives, again, ha has not only helped me to, to lead the organizations that I am part of, but I think it's made me a, a better uh, communicator. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a, a sense for, for what that sort of looks like on the ground? You know, how does it walk and talk maybe in how you are being informed on making a big decision or if you are sort of uh, researching um, a topic? How do you incorporate those different perspectives uh, into your, to your information gathering? One bit of advice that uh, was important for me uh, is a simple phrase, uh, seek first to understand. Try to understand the point of view that's being expressed to you, particularly if it's a point of view that differs from <laughs> your own. Uh, try to listen and learn and pay attention to the situations you're in. I'll, I'll give you one moment early in my career that helped to uh, change uh, my approach uh, to leadership. When I first uh, went to the United States Congress uh, quite a long time ago, uh, I uh, organized my first congressional hearing, the first in the House of Representatives on uh, the climate crisis. And I invited uh, the professor who had inspired me as an undergraduate way back in the, in the 1960s to be the leadoff witness in, in, in uh, this hearing. Dr. Roger Revelle was his name. And I naively thought that it, when my colleagues uh, at the dais heard this great wise professor, they would have the same epiphany that I had experienced in a full college course. It turned out that a 20-minute congressional statement was not comparable. And at the end of that hearing, there were the equivalent of of yawns, I would say, and the experience that I had had listening him to him through that full course was simply not replicated in, in that congressional hearing. And so that caused me to, to stop and think, wait a minute, what were the elements of this communication between him and me when I was younger that engaged me and caused me to really change my thinking and how different uh, that is from a congressional hearing. 
And so I began then a long journey that I'm still on to try and understand the best way to communicate with people about the existential nature of the climate crisis. It is so different from anything humanity has ever experienced before. The threat of nuclear war during the height of the standoff between the U.S. and the former Soviet Union is the only thing that really comes close because this too, like the prospect of nuclear war, is potentially civilization ending. Uh, and and it's, it's changing, it's getting worse so quickly, as I said earlier. We have to be willing to make bold moves. You know, back during uh, the years when I was in the Senate working on nuclear arms control, I became friends with a Russian poet. He's passed on now. His name was Yevgeny Yevtushenko. He wrote a famous poem in the last days of the old Soviet Union called Half Measures. And the poem was about a man standing on the edge of a cliff, looking across the chasm at the cliff on the other side uh, and preparing to, to leap across to safety. And the point of the poem was, don't try it in two leaps. Uh, and, and the transition we are now trying to make from dirty, destructive fossil fuels to renewable energy, from combustion vehicles to electric vehicles, from inefficient and wasteful approaches to business and industry to the new clean, uh, sustainable approaches. We can't do it in two leaps because it just doesn't work. So finding better ways to communicate uh, to people generally that this is insane, we have to change it, and we have to change it, not gradually, but quickly, that is a, a mission that I've been on since that learning experience way back in the 1970s and early 80s when I first began to try to communicate more effectively about the climate crisis. And what tactics do you employ since that realization to capture people's imaginations? Some of uh, this may sound pretty elementary. You know the old cliche, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I found that a slideshow is worth, is worth a thousand speeches if it's done well. And, and then I was approached by some folks in Hollywood who are very talented to make my slideshow into a movie. And another example of my own naivete, I thought that was a, a silly idea. I couldn't see how it would work. Uh, but they have more talent than I counted on. And I've participated in launching two movies on climate thus far, but I've tried to use another tool as well. And that is uh, to, to delegate or, or to recruit others to also deliver the message that needs to be heard around the world. And when my first movie came out, I started training grassroots advocates. The first class was 50 people at my farm in Tennessee. And by now, I've personally trained uh, almost 50,000 people who go through a, a, a lengthy, almost week-long course that goes into great detail on the causes and the solutions for the climate crisis, but also focuses on giving all of these people the skills and, and the tools and the networked uh, connections with one another and with the scientific uh, community to be effective uh, advocates. A and our focus is increasingly on convincing policymakers to make changes because uh, some of the largest polluters tried to get across the idea that 
really this burden is on each individual to turn off the light switch when you leave the room to change the light bulbs to more efficient ones and, and so forth. And that's all fine and good. But as important as it is to change the light bulbs, it's a lot more important to change the policies. And our current policies around the world still subsidize the burning of fossil fuels, forcing taxpayers to subsidize the destruction of our future with sums that are more than 30 times greater than the meager amounts that are being used to accelerate the transition to renewable energy. We have ridiculous policies that ignore the scientific truth of what we're doing. And by the way, going back to the subprime carbon bubble, continuing to spend all this money on fossil fuels is creating the number one financial risk for the global economy. I mentioned the subprime mortgage catastrophe. You know, that caused the Great Recession. When people suddenly realized that these mortgages given to millions of people who couldn't make the monthly payments, couldn't make a down payment, it was ridiculous and absurd. But there was a kind of a mass delusion. There were big fees to be earned. And uh, there was an illusion that if we just lump them all together and fob them off into the global marketplace, somehow the risk would magically disappear. Well, it didn't. Uh, when some guy on the spectrum in Silicon Valley took the time to really dig in and uh, realized, oh my God, these things are worthless, then in short order, uh, they, they collapsed. And that's what caused the credit crisis and the Great Recession. Now, the subprime carbon bubble is much larger, $22 trillion worth of assets that cannot be burned, not only because of whatever legislation and treaty obligations are involved, but because they're losing the license, the public's license to operate. And the competition from these new sustainable technologies like solar and wind and batteries and EVs and the other things I've mentioned are making them non-competitive. So we really have to, to speed up the pace and start making these changes much quicker. You're a founder of the Climate Reality Project, and in 2020, that initiative hosted its first ever virtual climate activist training to help climate leaders gain practical skills. Can you talk a little bit about the Climate Reality Project, what it is, and what those practical skills are? As a bit of background through the Climate Reality Project, I've now personally hosted 48 trainings for climate leaders. The first one, as I mentioned, was just 50 people at my farm. But when the pandemic forced so many of us to rethink what we were doing, like a lot of others, I said, okay, how can we do this in a virtual format? And that led to a discovery that is similar to what many have learned, that sometimes these virtual technologies can be better. You miss the in-person interactions and all of that. I'm looking forward to getting back to that. I pray God this thing will soon be over to the point where we can get back in person. But I had already held trainings in major cities around the world and tailored them to the climate impacts and solutions and idiosyncratic policy landscape in each of those locations. We held trainings in Brazil and focused on the protection of biodiversity and learned from the land defenders there in the Amazon and elsewhere, risking their lives to protect the planet. We held big trainings. For example, in Atlanta, Georgia, we invited all of the 
environmental justice grassroots uh, leaders to come to that. And uh, we've brought the latest science on projected impacts to our trainings all around uh, the globe. And then uh, when the world shifted online, we rethought and redesigned our training and ended up reaching significantly more leaders than we ever could have at the in-person trainings. And now uh, we're gonna continue this. Our first global training in 2020 welcomed many thousands of new climate reality leaders from all around the world. And we train people from a variety of backgrounds, all ages, and that means the skills they need to develop very widely. But the basics are, are very similar. We found the most important step for any leader is developing the base of knowledge that can give you confidence and enable you to become a clear and concise communicator. And one of the core pieces of every training is a, an overview of the latest science behind both the impacts uh, and the solutions. And we believe that knowing and understanding the truth of this challenge is fundamental to effective action. The, the other skill that's essential for any leader, no matter where you are, is an ability to grow your network and work well with others. One of the things we do in our trainings is to make sure that the leaders have the time and the space to talk to one another and learn on an ongoing basis from one another. We pair leaders with uh, mentors from the region where they live, as well as with their peers uh, who are going through the training with them in order to talk through the challenges that they're experiencing on the ground as they begin to become effective advocates and to provide uh, real-time, real-world advice and the connections that enable them uh, to amplify their leadership. Effectively communicating the challenge posed by the climate crisis, articulating the solutions that can be implemented, and building connections and broadening the movement in your own community, those are some of the most important skills that any climate leader can and should develop. And we focus on trying to give all these folks uh, exactly those skills. And with this sort of army of uh, people armed with these skills, what is maybe the impact that you could see happening maybe in five years, uh, maybe even seven years down the line? What change can happen as you keep sort of scaling th this training? Well, we are right now beginning to cross the fabled uh, political tipping point, beyond which uh, there will be sufficient political support to overcome the rear guard uh, lobbying uh, actions and political actions by the polluters, uh, and chief among them are the fossil fuel companies. And by the way, some of them are trying to change, and we need them to participate uh, in this change. But but here, for example, and in many places around the world, they they are really working overtime using the wealth and political uh, connections they built up over the last century or so in order to, to bend uh, politicians to their political will and, and to fight against the changes that we need uh, and to fight for continued subsidies for these dirty fossil fuels that are threatening our future. So uh, I think that this political tipping point I mentioned is it's essential that we cross it as quickly as possible. In some countries, we've already seen it. In my own country, uh, the president is completely on board, but our U.S. Senate is divided 50-50. You may have seen some news stories about that. 
Uh, and, and so we have to continue moving forward to build a solid majority for the in support of the kind of changes we need in policies to save our future. Today you said we have to stop using our atmosphere as an open sewer. There's a lot of jargon in climate work these days and a lot of acronyms that get between people and the things that they need to understand. How important is straight talk to connecting to people on the climate? Well, I think it's absolutely uh, essential. Uh, speaking truth to power on this issue has never been more important. It's also essential to demand straight talk from the leaders in business and government when they address this issue and go beyond uh, uh, simply uh, allowing them to profess their commitment to climate action in a vague way aimed at distant goals, uh, the achievement of which would not even be accomplished during the time when <laughs> they're <laughs> responsible for their companies or, or for their political organizations. We need the global community to hold leaders accountable for the words they speak and to make sure that those words are turned into concrete action. One of the most powerful things I've seen in the climate movement over the past few years is the clarity of message and purpose expressed by young climate leaders. Uh, their moral conviction and uncompromising straight talk has helped to drive significant progress. We need more of that. We need people young and old to call out leaders whose climate commitments are, to paraphrase uh, Greta Thunberg, nothing more than blah, blah, blah. If you could give advice to yourself uh, at the beginning of your career, what would that be? What would you want that man to know, that younger version of yourself? Oh, gosh. Uh, I started working on the climate crisis 45 years ago. If I had it to do over again, I would have started earlier. So you'd tell him to get working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is look, it, it is to, to turn this around and look at it a different way, Linda. I think that those of us alive in this extraordinary time should see it as a privilege to have work to do that will determine the future of our civilization. It's really the case. And there's a sense of joy if you have work that makes you feel as if it justifies pouring every ounce of energy you have into it. We don't have time for despair. We don't have time to get depressed. It's an all hands on deck time. We need to solve this crisis. We can't look away from it. We can't pretend that it's not as deadly serious as it is. We can't pretend it's not getting worse faster than we've yet begun to solve it. I don't know if I could go back and do things over, I would just start even earlier and put even more energy into it. Al Gore was talking to Linda Lucina. Find all of her interviews on Meet the Leader. Search for that wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to it. And please also subscribe to this one, Radio Davos, and leave us a rating and a review. And join the conversation about both podcasts and, in fact, all and any podcasts at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>